Yeah. The key thing is don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9 11 itself. Welcome to the special live version of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting every weekend evening from a undisclosed Hello. location out in the woods of western Wisconsin, someplace where uh, even, even the people looking for Dick Cheney will have even less luck uh, trying to track me down. I bring on the best guests who have the important things to say about the most important issues. And tonight we have a great double header lined up for you. The overall theme here would be uh, who let's are we saving the Muslim women from their evil men, or is this whole thing a big excuse to rape, loot, and pillage the world? And that's kind of how it looks to me in the second hour. We're talking with Helen Bainiski about her, her new article about what's really going on over in Iran. And I'll give you a hint it is another day, another color revolution. She says the uh, Iranian girls gone wild thing is really a CIA mind control op. And in the first hour, we're going to talk about uh, one of the most mistreated women in the world. And she's a Muslim woman who's being mistreated by the, uh, what should we call them, the axis of good. That's, I guess, how they think of themselves. But the story uh, is just uh, nauseating. And that, of course, is Afia Siddiqui. And there will be some demonstrations on behalf of her, near where she is being locked up in the Federal Medical Center in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. And the organizer, El Hajmuri Salakan of Afia.org, a noted human rights activist who is actually en route to Texas, I guess he might even be in Texas by now, to help organize those demonstrations, is with us. So let's uh, talk to him. Hey, welcome, El Hajmuri Salakan. It's great to have you, Mori. How are you? It's good to be with you, Kevin. Um, uh, it, it's a real pleasure, my brother. I wish I could have joined you via Skype, but we we have arrived in Texas, but we didn't uh, arrive at our hotel, and so we have to do this uh, this interview, this little conversation by by phone. Well, you're coming through loud and clear. It's almost as good as a studio mic, uh, so no problem there. So, man, you know this this uh, Afia case has just dragged on and on and on. And the government has lied about so many things. They even deny that they had her locked up in the black site uh, for all those years. Uh, the, the same way they lie about just about everything. And here's a woman who's being falsely accused of all sorts of horrible things that they never, ever charged her with. All they charged her with was resisting her captors, that is, her, her rapists and torturers. And they gave her uh, multiple life sentences for this. Where are all the, the women's rights activists on this case? Oh, that's a very good question. Uh, I was just uh, chatting with my one of our board members of the Afia Foundation on our way here. And one of the uh, uh, the things that uh, we, we, we spoke about was how uh, activists uh, in the United States and in other parts of the world uh, how a lot, how so much of the activism has been spurred on by women. Uh, but yes, when it comes to this issue of Dr. Afia Siddiqui, 
um, while there are pockets of female um, resistance in different parts of the world, especially on the ground in Pakistan and in the UK uh, for Dr. Afia Siddiqui, um, we, we don't see as much of it as we could and should right here in the United States where she's being held and where the, uh, the, the, the capital of uh, what they would like to, us to believe that, that the capital of activist feminism is, is, is located. Uh, yeah, she is a, 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 uh, an extraordinary Muslim woman uh, who has been ignored uh, by uh, many uh, civil uh, liberties and human rights activists, uh, including uh, uh, those of the same gender as she right here in the United States. Yeah, it's, it's just a total outrage. I mean, he, she's a, a neuroscientist, uh, Ivy League neuroscientist, PhD, a leading Islamic activist. And then after 9-11, the lynch mob started going after convenient targets, and somehow she got targeted. We heard, heard yeah. one version of that from Gordon Duff last month, and there may be some truth to what Gordon said. Uh, that is that the neocons uh, went out of their way to target her. Uh, as far as the, the details of why she was targeted and this crazy uh, mythology of her being such a terrible terrorist was all invented. Uh, and then she's, you know, why she had to be crucified like this is just really uh, kind of confusing to me. And, you know, maybe you could sort of summarize the story for our listeners who don't know about it. Well, Avia Siddiqui came to the United States as an 18 year old in 1990. Uh, it comes from a uh, a, a very committed uh, and, and well, well-to-do, uh, comparatively speaking, Muslim family in uh, Karachi, Pakistan. Uh, she's the baby of her siblings. She has an older brother and older sister. Her brother, uh, who is her only uh, blood relative in the United States, is an architect by training. Uh, her sister is a physician. Uh, following in the steps of her father, who was also, uh, uh, before he passed away, a practicing physician, uh, the mother who recently passed away, a social worker. So they uh, came from a well, to, you know, situated and, and very committed, deeply committed family. Uh, Afia, in addition to her extraordinary academic prowess, uh, she, uh, after spending one year, her first year in the United States at the uh, University of Houston, um, she acquired a uh, full scholarship uh, to MIT. She went off to MIT, graduated with honors from there, and went on to Brandeis University, where she got her PhD in cognitive neuroscience. But, you know, the thing that distinguished Athia above and beyond her academic prowess was her commitment to Islam. Uh, Afia Siddiqui, uh, in her heart of hearts, is a da'i. She is someone who has this deep love and commitment to Islam, and a, she has a passion for spreading the message of Islam. And, and keep in mind, this was in the early 90s, when Muslims and Islam were being targeted globally. You know, um, if you can recall, there was a major shift that occurred uh, after the collapse of the former Soviet Union, okay. America's emergence as the sole remaining, quote unquote, superpower on the block, uh, that uh, taking place around the same time as the uh, 
revolution that removed the Shah, America's then uh, policemen in the Gulf from power in Iran. And there was just a major shift that occurred uh, in global politics when the, uh, you know, the military industrial complex of the United States uh, followed closely uh, assumed by a national security complex needed a new enemy. So the new enemy was, uh, became the green threat and, um, you know, militant, radical Islam. And so, you know, Muslims were already uh, becoming huge targets uh, uh, during that uh, period. And, uh, you know, leading up to obvious uh, uh, coming to the United States as this, um, uh, this young freshman who saw the America as an opportunity, not just to further her education, but also as an opportunity to spread the message peacefully of Islam. As a result of Afia's passion, the combination of her academic prowess, which won her many accolades uh, during her uh, collegiate years, coupled with her, her passionate commitment to Islam in Boston, you know, uh, a, a city that, uh, for those of us who know it well, the history of Boston well, was not only the seat of the American Revolution, but it has been the seat of a lot of racist bigotry uh, throughout America's history. Yeah, ask uh, Kyrie Irving about that. Yeah. So uh, Afia Siddiqui became a target because of her activism. Uh, Part of that activism came to fore when the Bosnian crisis occurred. I remember when I first went to Boston to, uh, to, to, to meet and talk with folk who knew Afia as a student, one of the most senior imams in the city of Boston, Imam Abdullah Farouk, an African-American imam uh, who uh, has headed uh, for a, a good number of years a mosque in Roxbury known as uh, Masjid Alhamdulillah or the Mosque for the Praising of Allah. When I met him for the first time, he asked me if I remembered the Bosnian crisis. I said, of course I do. He said, brother, if we were to point to one person who was most responsible for helping uh, to uh, galvanize the greater Boston community uh, to respond to the humanitarian crisis that uh, resulted from that uh, political uh, crisis uh, as a communal force, it was this small, you know, uh, you know, four foot, 11, maybe five feet, a uh, hundred pounds soaking wet uh, uh, undergrad by the no- name of Athia Siddiqui. She was just a powerhouse when it came to humanitarian relief work, when it came to Dawa, and that made her a target of the Zionists in Boston, the Christian Zionists, as well as the Jewish Zionists. They targeted her relentlessly. And no doubt this targeting of Athia Siddiqui is what resulted uh, with her be, uh, becoming part of, uh, you know, falling onto the radar after 9-11 when activist Muslims throughout the country were being um, identified and visited by the FBI uh, for information and, and, and as possible uh, threats to America's national security. I myself received three visits over the course of a, of a year. So she, she became a target. 
And that targeting of Afia Siddiqui post 9-11 resulted in uh, her, uh, a cloud of suspicion following her home in 2002 when she returned to Pakistan, having spent 12 fruitful years in the United States, 12 very fruitful, exemplary years. Uh, that cloud followed her within a matter of months. In March of 2003, Afia Siddiqui was targeted uh, on the orders of Uncle Sam, targeted for uh, uh, a disappearance, a rendition operation. She and her children had gotten into a taxi cab, were on their way to the airport to visit a maternal uncle in Islamabad and to talk to Pakistani government officials about her ideas for helping to revolutionize uh, a Pakistan's educational system. She never made it. The, the, the taxi was stopped. She and her three children, at the time ages six, four, and six months, were forcibly removed, and then they just disappeared. This was in March of 2003. And then five years later, in the summer of 2008, after four Arab Muslim men escaped from Bagram in Afghanistan. And they told stories about how they had been targeted for rendition. They were uh, uh, kidnapped, secretly imprisoned, and tortured. They also told the story of this one woman whose name they didn't know, but they described her as a Pakistani national who had spent a number of years in the United States. They had heard this through the, the, the grapevine within the prison. Um, and, you know, she um, uh, was had been torn from her children. They would hear her scream from time to time, not just uh, because of what was being done to her, but the agony of missing her children and not knowing where they were. And as this word, this, this information about this mysterious woman known as Prisoner 650 began to um, uh, 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 be shared w uh, in, in the public domain. Uh, persons in the know began to put two and two together. This sounds like it could be Afia Siddiqui. And so individuals like Yvonne Ridley out of the UK, the, uh, the investigative journalist, um, Imran Khan, who was then an up and coming, uh, 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 you know, political figure in Pakistan and a number of other prominent folk, uh, began to raise the issue of the mysterious woman being held, uh, at Bagram. And then, you know, initially, America, American authorities denied they were holding a female prisoner. But then something else happened. There was a, um, a U.K. national um, who was released from Bagram. And when he was released and returned to the U.K., a U.K. citizen, he was shown a photograph of Afia Siddiqui. And he positively identified this as being the person that they saw. They would see from time to time being moved within the corridors of Bagram. And as this final uh, confirmation occurred, and the U.S. authorities couldn't deny they were holding a, a female prisoner any longer, they, they, they admitted they were holding a female, but they still denied it was Afia Siddiqui. And shortly after that admission of them having a female prisoner, they moved Afia from Bagram to another nearby town, Ghazni. And they... Uh, reunited her with her son, who she hadn't seen in five years, her oldest son, Ahmed. They, they left both of them outside of a governor's compound. Um, and 
then someone you know dropped a dime. They made a phone call and said, uh, you know, there's this suspicious-looking non-Afghan woman and young boy uh, hanging around the governor's compound. We believe she may be a suicide bomber. The intent was, we believe, for her to be shot on sight by Afghan authorities. But Allah to Allah intervened. You know, um, Afia heard the adhan coming from a nearby mosque, the adhan, the Muslim call to prayer. And when she heard the event, she went into the mosque. In that part of the world, women don't frequent the mosque. Uh, and so when she went in, she drew the attention of, of the men that were there. And by the time the authorities arrived, you know, she was already surrounded by men. Uh, and uh, they just took her into custody, took her, took her to the Afghan police commander's compound, put her in a room uh, along with her son behind a curtain. And then shortly thereafter, the room filled up with American authorities. It was soldiers, FBI, CIA. They got into a heated uh, discussion with the Afghan police commander over custody. They wanted Afia turned over to them. And uh, Afia uh, testified during her trial, what masqueraded as a trial in New York City, just a few blocks from ground zero, that when she heard the uh, the, the voices of the Americans in the room arguing over her uh, custody with the Afghan authorities, she began to feel panic. She, she thought about the secret prison, not wanting to go back. She got up, looked through the curtain to see if there was a door that she and the young boy that was with her could escape through. And as soon as she looked through the curtain in this small, crowded room, uh, a, a, an American soldier, he panicked. He, he saw her, didn't realize she was behind the curtain unrestrained. He jumped up and he shouted, the prisoner is free, and took out his sidearm and he fired. He shot Afia in the torso. She fell back. They rushed behind the curtain, you know, threw her to the you know, floor. She had fell back on a cot uh, in, uh, behind the curtain. They threw her to the floor. Um, all hell, as the, as the saying goes, broke loose, argumentation uh, between uh, the American and Afghan authorities. The Afghans insisted that she get emergency treatment. They didn't, then helivacked her uh, to where she could get emergency treatment, probably back at Bagram. And then after she was stabilized, in violation of Afghan sovereignty and international law, they removed her from Afghan territory. They took her, brought her back to the United States after she was well enough to be able to be wheeled into a courthouse uh, in lower Manhattan, blocks away from ground zero, in a wheelchair, slumped over because she couldn't even sit upright. Um, she was arraigned. Uh, she was accused of uh, attempting to murder U.S. personnel. I think there was a total of seven counts of of, uh, you know, these uh, uh, imaginary uh, uh, accounts of, of, you know, that they accused her of. And the rest, as they say, is sordid history. About a year and a half later in 2010, uh, she was put on trial. And um, despite the fact that all of the evidence, the hard evidence, um, the forensic evidence, 
was in her favor. And even the Afghan commander's sworn affidavit submitted to the court that the prisoner never touched a weapon. You know, they had to come up with a cover story. They said that she was shot because, you know, an American soldier in a war zone in violation of military policy laid his M4 rifle on the floor. And she came charging through the curtain, picked it up, took the safety off of it, and tried to shoot her way out of captivity. That's one of the lamest cover stories in the history of excuses for shooting prisoners. Yes, indeed. And so she was shot in self-defense. That was the story. And uh, so they charged her with a number of counts, again, the, the major one being attempting to murder U.S. personnel. And even though she was the only one injured, there was no forensic evidence to uh, uh, to to uh, support the allegation, um, and and the Afghan police commander even admitted in a sworn affidavit that she never touched a weapon. She was found guilty on all counts, and then the judge, uh, a, a Zionist judge by the name of Richard Berman, who was openly biased against Afia Siddiqui in the way that he um, handled, uh, you know, the management of this trial. Uh, he applied terrorism enhancements, even though it was not a terrorism case. He applied terrorism enhancements to uh, justify giving Afia Siddiqui an 86-year sentence. And, uh, you know, subhanAllah, brother, man, you know, in America, I have been in courthouses and seen convicted persons convicted of manslaughter and murder not get a life sentence, but she got a life sentence. And right now she is on a military base, a military reserve base known as Carswell in Fort Worth, Texas, where we just arrived. We're here in the DMW. Uh, uh, I mean, the uh, (laughs) DMV, I was thinking about home base. Uh, No, we're in the, uh, we're in Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, DFW. And, um, you know, she's on a military base at Carswell uh, in an institution known as FMC Carswell, which is supposed to be a federal medical center, a prison hospital, but it's far more of a prison with a notorious reputation than a hospital. And this is where she has been in prison now for a number of years. A shell yeah, of her former self. It's just, uh, it's incredible. And, you know, they they have tried to, basically cover up this mistake they made by grabbing her and holding her all those years, never getting any evidence against her as some sort of evil Al-Qaeda terrorist. And it seems that this whole bogus story that got her locked up is basically to cover their tracks and to to cover up the fact that they made a a tremendous mistake in the first place by going after her. Um, And, as I understand it, this this cover story they've invented, they they claim that uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed KSM, who is uh, the story behind him, of course, is that a, a mentally retarded individual named Abu Zubaydah, who was uh, all, not only retarded, but also rather unstable, apparently, and incapable of really doing much of anything, uh, was tortured until they got him to say that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was sort of this Al-Qaeda mastermind of 9-11 and so on and so forth. Then they, they managed to capture KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and he was tortured uh, just hundreds and hundreds of times 
He confessed to pretty much every crime since the Lindbergh baby kidnapping and the JFK assassination. And, and no, seriously, he actually did confess to a, a number of crimes committed after he was already in custody. He was basically confessing to whatever they tortured him into, you know, what, whatever he thought they wanted him to say, which is what happens when you torture people, of course. And so Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's testimony became the backbone of the 9-11 Commission report. If you actually follow the footnotes of the 9-11 Commission report, there's virtually no evidence whatsoever for this whole story about the 19 supposed hijackers, except for what was supposedly extracted from Khalid Sheikh Mohammed while he was being tortured. However, the 9-11 Commission uh, and its staff were never allowed to talk to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed or to verify that these alleged torture sessions even ever took place. They never saw any notes. They never saw any recordings. They only got the secondhand testimony or word from somebody supposedly related to the CIA who couldn't reveal his identity or job, who told them supposedly in total hearsay that, okay, this is what Khalid Sheikh Mohammed said while he was being tortured. So that's the evidence that has been used to convict these 19 young men in the court of public opinion of the crime of 9-11. And so while they were torturing him, they got him to say all sorts of other things, including uh, claiming that Afi Siddiqui was a party to all of these millions of crimes. And so it's it's just kind of amazing how we've gone, you know, we've become a society now where people are are tortured into false confessions, which are then built up into public myths. And people are, are demonized and uh, horrifically mistreated based on these myths. It's just an outrage. Yes, it is. It's an absolute outrage. It's a violation of what America is supposed to be. You know, it projects itself around the world as this land of liberty and justice for all. And it, it, it's quite the opposite in, in, in many instances. It, it, it has demonstrated itself to be what uh, the uh, late, Senator J. William Fulbright uh, described in his book, The Arrogance of Power, you know, uh, a, a nation uh, state that is of it is there are two Americas, he said. And, and you know, the description that he gave in that book, you know, and, and he wrote this book, um, it, you know, he began, from my, my understanding, writing this book when he was in the, uh, you know, the twilight of his political career, having, you know, at that time held one of the most powerful Senate uh, uh, positions, uh, you know, uh, sent, uh, he was the chairman of the, uh, the uh, Senate Foreign Relations longer than any other senator in U.S. history up until that, that point. And, you know, he described from a, a very insightful perch, the two Americas, you know, and, and so this is, this is what it is. And, and Afia Siddiqui and, and so many others has been caught in the vortex of, of this contradiction, this, 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 this two-faced America. You know, the late, I'll never forget uh, when, when um, Ramsey Clark had just returned from Pakistan and we, you know, by the grace of Allah, we helped to facilitate um, his, uh, um, his visit uh, to Pakistan to meet with government officials, to meet with the family of Afia Siddiqui, uh, to campaign in a number of cities for something to be done uh, on, on the part of the Pakistani government to get their citizen back home, the daughter of the nation. When he returned, we were in Texas, where I am right now, and we were here for a, a, a rally for Afia Siddiqui, as we are right now. He came back uh, to Texas, which is 
his home state. This is where he was originally from. Um, and I'll never forget in a presentation that he delivered, a public presentation he delivered when he was speaking about Althea Siddiqui, he, he described her, her case as the, and this is a quote. He said, the case of Althea Siddiqui is the worst case of individual injustice I have ever witnessed. When he said these words, it resonated with me because I have felt the same way. I've been in courthouses over the past almost four decades around issues of, of many different stripes involving, you know, um, you know uh, police misconduct, police abuse, political imprisonment. I mean, all kinds of, of cases and issues. This case has weighed, you know, on me more than any other case I've ever been involved in. So when I heard Ramsey Clark, you know, who was then close to 90, he was then close to 90 years of age, having left government, become this international uh, figure known uh, around the world for his human rights work, you know, post, uh, you know, uh, government uh, uh, work, you know, he has seen a lot. He had, had experienced a lot. When he said these words about Afia Siddiqui, like I said, they resonated with me because that was the way I felt and still feel to this day. And this is what has me and one of our board members back in Texas for a rally that is scheduled a week from this Sunday on, Mar on, on October 23rd. You know, we're going to be outside FMC Carswell, hopefully with a larger body of, of folk than we had last year when we had between three to 400 uh, supporters of Afia Siddiqui outside those gates. Well, that, that sounds like a, a very uh, noble cause and a, it's a good reason to go to, go to Dallas. It's uh, I, I'm tempted myself. I'll, I'll, I don't think I'll be able to do it, but I would sure like to. And if anybody who's anywhere uh, closer to Dallas than I am, Fort Worth, uh, Fort Worth, yeah, Fort Dallas, Worth. Fort Worth, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. uh, it's it's definitely something that would be very much worth doing. You know, she, it's, I think her, the case of Dr. Afia, uh, like the case of Dr. Samuel Arian, shows that the best, uh, most successful, and uh, the one with the people with most potential among Islamic activists uh, during the 1990s, the run up to 9/11, were targeted. That is. You know, the, there's there's that scene in uh, uh, the uh, Martin Scorsese film Gangs of New York. At the very end of the film, the last scene in this film, which, you know, it all takes place during the Civil War era, 19th century, uh, about gang fighting in New York. And it, but it ends with a lingering shot of the skyline of the World Trade Center, which is mm -hmm. odd because that movie was released a little bit, you know, a few years after 9-11. So what was that about? Well, I think Scorsese was telling us that what happened to the World Trade Center was related to this long history of ethnic warfare in the United States. His film Gangs of New York is about the ethnic warfare between the so-called English, meaning the colonists who'd been there for a while, and then the Irish immigrants. And this was a bloody sort of war within the Civil War. And that kind of ethnic uh, struggle for power has been going on in the United States ever since. Dr. E. Michael Jones says that the the wasps used to run the country, and then there was a battle between the Catholics and the Jews, 
and the Jews won. Well, as I see it, uh, 9-11 was, to a certain extent, a uh, kind of preemptive uh, strike against rising Muslim power in the United States, represented by people like Dr. Samuel Aryan, who had put George Bush Jr. in the White House. Uh, he uh, flipped the Muslim vote, which had been 90 percent plus Democratic in previous elections. He flipped it to 90 percent plus Republican so that George W. Bush beat Al Gore in Florida. That was where the most Muslim votes were that flipped the election. And Samuel Aryan then was rewarded for putting Bush in, in, in office. Uh, he was promised that that would be the end of persecutions of Muslims that had been going on under, under Clinton. And instead, he, he was scheduled to meet with George W. Bush on September 11, 2001. And Bush was going to sign into law an executive order uh, ending this uh, practice of preemptive or preventive detentions of, of Muslims that had been going on. Well, of course, that meeting never happened for obvious reasons. And the next thing you know, Samuel Aryan was being persecuted and crucified, not quite as horribly as Afia Siddiqui. So it seems to me, the long story short here, is that the Zionists, and let, we know, all know which ethnicity dominates that movement, uh, basically now control the United States. They were afraid that the rise of Muslim power and specifically driven by the really highly capable, brilliant activists like Samuel Aryan and Afi Siddiqui was going to pose a threat to their ability to maintain U.S. foreign policy uh, in a pro-Zionist mode. And so they did a preemptive strike by uh, blowing up the World Trade Center, murdering 3,000 Americans and turning the country into a gang of raving Islamophobes out to do the bidding of the Israelis and then some. So anyway, that's that's kind of my take on, on why there's been this conspicuous targeting of the most brilliant Muslim activists during, of, of the pre-9-11 era who then got crucified after 9-11. And the entire Muslim community in the United States has been terrorized into submission by uh, by this gang of neocons that blew up the Trade Center. And, uh, you know, for, to me, that's just not acceptable. And that's why I've been doing what I've been doing ever since uh, 2004. And uh, Afia Siddiqui is really the poster child of this uh, persecution of Muslims by the Zionist cabal that has taken over the United States. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you should have uh, shared that little bit of uh, history that you, you did, brother, because it is a very profound irony that, uh, uh, that Dr. Uh, Samuel Arian did play the role that he played uh, in helping Bush to win the presidency and then ended up being rewarded for it in, in the manner that he was. Uh, I, what, what, what's also worth noting is that um, that legislation, in fact, I, I accompanied Dr. Samuel Arian on Capitol Hill uh, for a, um, uh, he had organized this very, very impressive um, uh it was it was like an indoor rally, more than a forum, more than a hearing. It was more, you know, it, it was a very impressive indoor rally that took place on Capitol Hill um, in the uh, in, in the lead up uh, to that election. Uh, I was with him. I was I was part of that effort. Uh, that took place right in the halls of Congress and in, in one of the uh, rooms, it was attended by a number of um, uh, prominent uh, 
legislators. Uh, there was something that was called the the, the uh, 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 what, what was it? Subhanallah. Um, it it was it, it, there. There was a, a, a it, it's called a secret evidence, classified evidence, classified evidence. That's what it was. We wanted to end the government's use of what we called in the street secret evidence. And, and, and Bush had made a promise. Bush had made a promise that if he were elected, that he would put an end to it. All right. Um, and this, this secret evidence is something that came to fore after the Oklahoma City bombing. In fact, it had been sitting on the shelf collecting dust. They tried to pass it during the Clinton administration. It was so onerous. It was so onerous that either the, the Republicans as well as the Democrats, you know, just could not bring themselves to pass that legislation. Uh, so uh, they, they, it, it just was, it was put on the shelf. It was collecting dust. It wasn't until the bombing of the federal center in Oklahoma city in 1995, that was initially blamed on Muslims. <laughs> That's right. It was, probably, so, it was probably originally arranged to be blamed on Muslims, and then they had to fall back on Plan B. Right, and then and then just a few days later, they learned that it was uh, you know red-blooded ex-military Americans who were responsible for it, and but they still used the hysteria, and and you know you know the the. Um, First impression is the lasting impression syndrome, you know, Muslims being accused to pass that legislation. And it was used primarily against Muslims. So, you know, we we had this roughly five year period or four to five year period from from uh, 95 when it was passed. And then, you know, to the lead up to the uh, election and in 2000. And then, uh, you know, like I said, Bush said that he would do something about it. He promised he would do something about it if he were elected. Uh, as you pointed out, um, uh, Samuel Arian helped to engineer, spearheaded the engineering of it, of him getting a blocked vote from the Muslims, especially out of Florida. That saved the day for his, you know, winning the, uh, you know, w- winning the, 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 the White House. And he, ne- he, he never could have stole, stole the election. Did. He never could have stole that election without the Muslim votes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so one way of putting the it. The rest, as they say, in history. And then they came right behind that with legislation that was called the Omnibus Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. Uh, I mean, uh, 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 I mean, it was, it was just, it's just, it's just been crazy. I mean, or I should say, deepening that, deepening that legislation, and and to get it to where we are today, Afia Siddiqui. We believe, and initially I gave, I gave our government the benefit of the doubt. I gave these people the benefit of the doubt. Okay, they made a mistake. All right, but now at this point, at this point with all that we have come to know about Afia Siddiqui, about other outrages that have been committed in the name of national security and a war on terrorism, with all, it's, it's, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't. I'm going to say it was malignant intent. What they wanted to do with Afia Siddiqui was send a message, you know, post, um, you know, for the, for the past few years, 
We have been going after your, your men and your boys, young boys, even young boys. Now we're going to start targeting your females. And, and we're going to, and, and we're sending the message by targeting one of the most valuable Muslim women that they could have targeted, a young, um, you know, bursting with all kinds of, 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 uh, 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 Opportunity and 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 capability, Afia Siddiqui. We're going to go after the best uh, uh, among, you know, your best. And uh, you know, what are you going to do about it? You know, they, what are you going to? They they threw down a very oppressive gauntlet, and 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 this is something that um, none of us should tolerate. Not only should the Muslims of America not tolerate. But, you know, fair-minded, good-hearted, justice-loving non-Muslims of, of, of whatever political or ideological stripe uh, they may come from, they should not tolerate this because this is something that has been done in their name. Absolutely and, uh, right. you know, this is terrible. This is terrible. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think Graham C. Clark was right, calling it the worst case of individual injustice he'd ever witnessed. And he witnessed quite a few. He made a career out of trying to rectify cases of injustice, but uh, this yes, one was did. the worst, he said. Um, well, the, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that the people that they targeted when we, you know, we think about sort of who got singled out after 9-11. Uh, Afia Siddiqui was quite uh, outspokenly anti-Zionist in her views. And so was Dr. Samuel Aryan. He was Palestinian. He is still. He's Palestinian, of course. And uh, I happen to know some people who had a foundation in Chicago who ended up having the whole foundation seized and all their assets taken. And there may have been a a couple of criminal convictions even. Um, And that group was, again, uh, targeted because they were doing charitable work with Palestinians. And over and over, I see this pattern that it seems, as I mentioned, uh, you know, regarding that uh, Gangs of New York Scorsese reference, that 9-11 was used to take over the U.S. government in a, or for, you know, at least strengthen this hold over the U.S. government by extremist Zionist neocons and then persecute the Muslims who had been threatening to move American politics in a direction in which the U.S. might not always remain the slave of Israel in terms of its uh, Middle Eastern policy. So I see things in, in that light that that's and that's mm-hmm. what Philip Zellico, the sole author of the 9-11 Commission report, who who wrote the entire 9-11 Commission report in chapter outline with headings and subheadings and sub subheadings, even before the commission had even convened, uh, Philip Zellico admitted in a speech that he uh, he knew, he said, you know, would Saddam Hussein ever really attack us with WMD? Of course not. He, uh, you know, I'll tell you what I think the real threat is, and it's the threat that dare not speak its name, and that is the threat to Israel. And that threat is, 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 is people don't like to talk about it much because it's a hard sell. That's what Philip Zelikow said. And the way they were able to sell that threat and get the U.S. to squash Israel's enemies, both at home and abroad, was by blowing up the World Trade Center and blaming Muslims. And uh, if people want 
more of uh, the details about precisely who did it with names named and a certain uh, amount of how they did it, they should go to noliesradio.org and watch the new documentary film by Laurent Guyano. He's a French historian who's the author of a number of good books on, on these subjects, including JFK 9-11. And this, this new film on, uh, on 9-11 from Laurent Guyano uh, provides a lot of the details uh, about how a neocon Zionist cabal hijacked the United States by blowing up the World Trade Center on 9-11 and blaming it on Muslims. And then we had this house cleaning that involved the uh, crucifixion of Afi Siddiqui and Samuel Aryan and so many other uh, Muslim activists in the United States. And, and today, uh, Maury, you know, you and I are both old enough to remember what it was like pre-9-11. And the Muslim community was much more emboldened and energetic and willing to use constitutional protections of free speech to get active in the United States and pursue our political goals, including the anti-Zionist ones. Today, I find the Muslim community has been intimidated. Um, and I, I've spoken at a number of mosques, but most mosques really don't want me to come and uh, talk about 9-11, even though you would think that all Muslims in America, and the polls show two-thirds of American Muslims, think that it was a false flag, but the mosque leadership is usually afraid to go anywhere near that kind of topic. Um, and I imagine a lot of them are even afraid to stand up for Afia Siddiqui as well. The, the atmosphere has just changed radically due to this terrorizing of the Muslim community uh, based on 9-11. Have you noticed that, that huge shift? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, there are centers. I mean, I've been doing this work, uh, my brother, for almost 40 years. I, you know, almost 40 years I've been doing this work. And, you know, there are, <coughs> excuse me, centers that used to welcome my presence. And, you know, with the change, changing of the guard uh, in many of these centers, or I should say in some of these centers, uh, there was also a change in attitude, and 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 this became, um, you know, uh, more uh, noticeable post 9/11. It became far more noticeable, and yeah, there is that intimidation factor, and it's it's a challenge um, that if we are to shoulder the responsibility that we've been given by virtue of, of being the recipients of what we uh, believe to be the final revelation to all of humanity, the Quran. If we are to be good examples of this, then we have got to uh, challenge this, this fear of the created. We, you know, uh, we have to challenge this. You know, there, there's a hadith, a saying of the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Uh, he said, you know, when you see an evil action, you must change it with your hand. If you cannot do so with your tongue, the jihad of the tongue, if you cannot do so, detest it within your heart. And that is the weakest degree of faith. There is another hadith that, that goes even deeper than this, where the prophet is reported to have said, by the one in whose hand rests my soul, you must surely enjoin the good and forbid the evil. Otherwise, it is expected that Allah will send against you a punishment and you will supplicate him, but your supplications will not be answered. So we are being tested. 
This life is a test. The challenges that we face in this life is a test. Uh, Almighty God has forbidden oppression for himself and made it forbidden amongst us. So we have got to be persons who are willing to stand up against oppression. As that verse in the Quran that reads in translation says, stand firmly for justice as witnesses to Almighty God, Allah, even if it be against yourselves even if it be against yourself. So, you know, we, our character as a, as, as a religious community, as a faith community is being tested, is being measured. And we have got to measure up mm-hmm. by accepting the challenges of our time. You know, the challenges that have come before us in many different forms, and they're not going to go away. You know, um, th- th- there's no question about it, but that, that building as, you know, <laughs> I should say all three buildings, including the one that wasn't hit by an airliner, came down by controlled demolition. This is what, you know, the, 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 the body of engineers and, and, and uh, um, yeah, the architects, architects and engineers, and engineers for 9-11 Truth yeah. have said. You know, it came down through controlled demolition. You don't have to be an expert in that field to see the video and see how those buildings come down. That, that that was a controlled demolition. This isn't something that Osama bin Laden or Zuberi or anybody else, you know, that were Muslims could not have, would, could not have in their wildest imagination been capable of. So, yes, you know, but again, these are challenges. These are challenges that we have got to meet if we want to help this country live up to the better part of itself before it's too late. Amen, brother. Uh, so, uh, how can people find out more about this? I did a little web searching around, and I know you you have the website afia.org, and I didn't see the details for the sort of when and where uh, and time and so on of the demonstration. So, where can people learn about that so they can uh, come and join you? Okay, I am going to um, I'm I'm going to send you a copy of the electronic flyer so that you can post um wherever you are able to post it but it it you know for those who want to reach out uh, to me via email they can do so at peace through t-h-r-u p-e-a-c-e t-h-r-u justice j-u-s-t-i-c-e at aol.com peace through justice at aol you can also go to the website, afia.org, A-A-F-I-A.org, and reach us uh, through the website. Um, and, uh, but, or, in, you know, folks can also place a call to me. Uh, my mobile is 202-246-9608. Like I said, I'm in Texas right now. We just arrived. Uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, we're going to be here up until uh, the mobilization, what, about uh, eight or nine days from now, uh, the, the Sunday after this coming Sunday, the 23rd. And we're just going to be getting around to different centers, talking this up uh, and explaining to our brothers and sisters and to non-Muslims we encounter why we are here, what we're planning to do with this mobilization effort. and. Uh, how we're hoping it will help to free our sister who this coming March will mark 20 years 
of wrongful imprisonment, 20 years. The first five years as a secretly held prisoner at different black sites, including Bagram, uh, and tortured. And then from 2008 on to where we are today um, in the open, you know, for most of these years as a prisoner at FMC Carr as well. You know, the U.S. could buy itself a little bit of forgiveness anyway from Pakistan by uh, admitting that this was a terrible wrong and releasing Dr. Afia and apologizing because she is a national heroine in Pakistan. She's the kind of right. the symbolic first lady of Pakistan. And beside you know, crucifying her for two decades. And now, you know, it looks like the CIA once again uh, overthrew a government by engineering the parliamentary coup that uh, got rid of Imran Khan, who's the first honest politician in memory in Pakistan and maybe if not most of the world. Uh, so yeah, I don't know why the United States government is so insistent on really pissing off this big Muslim country. That's the only Muslim country with nuclear weapons. Um, but you know, they're the Pakistani people are really not happy with us policy. They, uh, they know nine 11 was a false flag. I saw a poll from uh, maybe a decade ago that showed that I believe there were only 3% of the Pakistani people who believed the official version of nine 11, the other 97% don't. And they don't particularly appreciate the overthrow of Imran Khan for the most part. And uh, they are really angry about what was done to Dr. Afia Siddiqui. Now, of all of these policy changes that the U.S. could make, the easiest one would be pardoning uh, and apologizing to Dr. Afia. I mean, what would it cost them? Almost nothing. Uh, they just have to admit that they made a mistake. But these people are just so arrogant that I don't think they're going to. But, you know, if we put the pressure on them, uh, who knows? How, how long do you think it'll be? I mean, what and, and what more can we do? Uh, talk a little bit about the future of, of helping free Afia in the last minute or two. What we need to do is, you know, turn out in every way possible and have our voices heard. This is what has to happen, especially in the country where Afia is imprisoned. We, you know, I, I was in Pakistan in 2014 and, and toured the country with her sister and a, uh, a, a small a uh, group of, of brothers. We toured the country and everywhere I went, including all the way up right next to Afghanistan in Pashtun country. Uh, you know, she was the daughter of the nation and they wanted her back. They want her back. So all we've got to do, I agree with you. America would be able to buy a lot of goodwill in the Muslim world, not just in Pakistan, but in other parts of the Muslim world by releasing Afia Siddiqui. She has become this international symbol. And, and you know, we, we would buy a lot of good grace. So, you know, we just, we need to exert as much pressure as we can here in the United States toward that end. Uh, and, and um, you know, we're, we're here right now, again, in Dallas-Fort Worth for that purpose. Um, we're hoping that this mobilization on the 23rd will be much bigger than the last one was, which was a very successful mobilization. And then next month, we will be holding a demonstration in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., 
for all of our political prisoners, not just for Afia Siddiqui, for Imam Jamil Abdullah El Amin, for the Holy Land Five, uh, for Dr. Tariq uh, uh, Mahanna, for all of our political prisoners. Okay, and I'll, I'll post that. Uh, well, so right. I'll post the details about this uh, demonstration on Sunday, October 23rd in Dallas-Fort Worth, and then I'll also post this information for the D.C. demonstration as well. Go to truthjihad.com, click on the radio link, find your way to this show. Uh, thank you so much, El Hajj, Maureen Salahad. Keep up the great work. God bless, uh, and uh, take, take care. Thank you. Thank you. My brother, may Allah bless you for your, your effort. Okay. Back in the next hour with Helen Bynisky.